0: Rather than asking the question, why do we sleep, we need to be asking what sleep is. But if you take basically any process in the brain, any function, it just changes fundamentally when you go from
1: waking to sleep. Hi there, I'm Alex von Klemperer and this is CortexCast, the podcast bringing you discussions with some of the most interesting researchers in neuroscience today. We'll be exploring the full spectrum of neuroscience, from cognitive behavioral research to cutting-edge molecular and transgenic techniques. We also want to explore how these researchers think about the brain and what really drives them to ask the questions that they do. If you're interested in cortex, then this is the cast for you. CortexCast is the official podcast of the Cortex Club, an Oxford University student-run society which connects Oxford students and researchers with world-leading neuroscientists. Researchers are provided a forum ranging from small, intense debates to large discussion sessions, usually followed by drinks with the students at the pub. If you'd like to know more about Cortex Club, including some of our past speakers, you can head to our website, cortexclub.com. Before we jump into it, I'd like to just ask the following. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe or like this episode or leave a comment. If you love the show, tell us what you love about it. And if it isn't working for you, then let us know what you really didn't like about it. Welcome to Cortex Cast. Uh, My name's Paula and I'm here with Alex and Sam who had a very interesting conversation with Vlad Fiasovsky. Maybe for the listeners, can you tell them a little bit about Vlad?
2: Yeah, he's a great guy. He's someone who works here in Oxford on the topic of sleep. Uh, which is, you know, everyone seems to have an opinion about and knows a lot about, um, but he really studies it in depth, and he's one of the, the leading researchers in, in the sleep field. Uh, but he has a really interesting life trajectory, so it was super nice to talk with him about that and to talk talk with him about what made him interested in sleep to start with, and the kinds of questions that he's working on at the moment.
1: Yeah, I think he's a super interesting guy to talk to, not just because sleep in itself is something that we still don't really understand at all, but also because Vlad is just so widely curious about so many different things. So we kind of touch on some of his research in sleep um, and we talk quite a bit about that, but then we also talk about some of his other interests and some of the other things that he's done.
2: One of the things that really for me was a take home message is that Vlad is an example of someone who just builds science from the ground up wherever he is. So he really is a guy who was who able to turn um, scientific questions into experiments with, with very little, little to start with. And I found that very inspiring to know that you can do science anywhere and at any time.
1: Yeah, and the fact that you know you can always be questioning the status quo when you're designing these experiments. And we spoke very briefly about some of the work that he's done on things like learning in plants, which you really wouldn't think of as a sort of traditional scientific question or something that you'd approach. Especially from a sleep neuroscientist, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So super interesting guy. Um, Great to talk about his life and his science. And uh, we were very fortunate to get a full hour with him.
1: Sounds awesome. Let's have a listen.
0: So you, you grew up in Ukraine? Yes, I was born up and grew up in Ukraine in a city called Kharkov. I did my undergraduate studies in, in Kharkov in Ukraine at Kharkov National University. I studied. I started with zoology. I always wanted to be a zoologist and work with animals. And then I became a physiologist. So yeah, I worked in a zoo, in a primate house, and a bird facility. And I had a lot of pets in my house always i had like 50 species of different animals in my house so you had a pretty clear idea which animals had what kind of sleep patterns then already i suppose i didn't i haven't thought about sleep at that point i just want to study animals and i i I really want to work with monkeys to, to study behavior of monkeys and i remember it in my undergraduate studies i went to the dean of, uh, of studies at the university and he would ask okay what would you like to do i said i would like to study monkeys I said, and he said something like well, there is shortage of monkeys in the ukraine or something like that <laughs> 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 yes and and i ended up doing my master's thesis in the institute called Institute of uh, cryobiology which was, uh, at that time, quite a strong institution. They studied effects of cold temperature. And I, I became interested in hibernation, in torpor and hibernation. When I, did, when I started looking for a place where to do a PhD, I found a laboratory in, in Zurich, in Switzerland, where they worked with Jungarian hamsters and studied the relationship between sleep and daily torpor in these animals.
2: So, and then uh, ending up studying sleep was more or less a coincidence? Or was it something that at the time you were particularly interested in?
0: I must say it was a coincidence. Okay. Uh, and I, yeah. Because, yeah, as I said, I, I was interested in hypothermia and hy- hypermetabolism. And, and I was uh, incredibly lucky because I ended up in this laboratory in, in Zurich, at the University of Zurich, yeah. led by Alex Borbe and Irene Tobler, which is still one of the leading laboratories in the field. Uh, they pioneered quite a few approaches, conceptual and technical, in, in sleep research. So I was incredibly lucky that I ended up in that laboratory,
2: where I learned all basics of how to study sleep. And at some point you worked with uh, another leader in the field of sleep, Giulio Tononi. Uh, yes, so
0: after I, uh, I finalized my uh, thesis in, in, in Switzerland, and then I was looking for a position yeah, I heard, of course, the name of Giulio Tannoni and Chiara Cirelli. They they were already at the time quite famous in in the field. And uh, when when I learned that they could um, offer me this uh, postdoctoral position, I was happy to go there. Uh, they uh, they were previously in California and they moved to Wisconsin just about a year before I joined. So it was for me quite a big change after I spent almost five years in Switzerland where everything was very well organized as you can expect from from swiss (laughs) uh infrastructure you had fantastic uh, support so you could any idea you had you you can go to the workshop and they will build it and then when you go in the middle of the winter in midwest and then you realize that it is like minus 10 minus Mm -hmm. 20 outside for weeks so i had to learn how to drive and then the lab was uh, basically non-existent. They were just in the process of building the lab. So I I bought my first graph stimulator on eBay for forty-five dollars. <laughs> 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 so this is how I my nature neuroscience paper was performed on a forty-five bucks uh, stimulator. That's so you right. don't need expensive equipment <laughs> basement science <laughs> yeah, it was painful <laughs> it was really painful because of course and uh, it was a US system you had to do everything yourself but it was an incredible school uh, You you learn not to be scared of problems and issues you just know that there is always a solution you just need to look
1: for it <laughs> sometimes the solution costs 45 dollars on ebay <laughs> <laughs> yeah sometimes
0: it's more expensive <laughs> yes but it was fun working there so the lab was growing uh, uh, after about a year or two this laboratory became quite rich because Judith Anonyi got an NH director pioneer award which was which allowed to Get what new equipment, and the group was growing. Um, so I spent there seven seven years. I would definitely advise everyone to have some U.S. experience. I think it is very useful. Uh, there are there are many good laboratories, great laboratories, and but there I think you learn to be independent, learn to deal with with issues, and then you come back.
1: You know. what brought you back to start your own lab? Uh,
0: So, after I spent um, like seven years in the U.S., at some point I really badly wanted to to go back to Europe, Uh, and I was looking for possibilities, I didn't arrive at Oxford immediately, there was a position at the University of Surrey, where there is another sleep and circadian uh, group, led by Derk and Dyke and Deborah Skin, so it was... uh, It was actually very nice to be there because I had to, uh, it gave me an opportunity to, to learn UK system and also I was a lecturer there so I, it was a totally new life.
1: is made possible by donations from the Centre for Neural Circuits and Behaviour at Oxford University. For more information, go to cncb.ox.ac.uk. We're also supported by the Medical Research Council Brain Dynamics Unit. Check out mrcbdnu.ox.ac.uk for more information. Cortex Club is supported by the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at Oxford University. Sleep is is something which everyone does. It's pretty ubiquitous. Everyone has a fairly different relationship with sleep. Like, I kind of hate going to sleep at night, but I also hate waking up in the mornings. But I think to most lay people, they imagine that when you go to sleep, it's kind of just lying down for a while with your eyes closed for eight hours, maybe. Why is sleep so interesting to neuroscience researchers like yourself? Uh, So indeed, um, sleep is so
0: familiar to all of us. We, We all feel experts in sleep. Because we all know so well what does it what is it like to be asleep? How does it feel to be asleep? Uh, and, uh, and and this is the main uh, problem with uh, sleep in general because we all take it for granted. Uh, but when we ask a very simple question, "What sleep is?", then it turns out that it is not. It is much much more complicated than it, than it seems. Uh, when we try to define sleep, there 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 are some criteria. Of course, it, it, um, it includes uh, lying down for eight hours with eyes closed, but there is obviously much more to that. And if, especially if we talk about simple animals who may sleep in a very different way. And uh, um, going back to your question, since sleep occupies such a large portion of our life, about one-third of our life, we spend asleep sleep and some animals uh, like ferrets, they spend uh, much more time asleep. It is very important uh, scientific question to understand why this is happening in the first place.
2: Yeah, so I suppose, I mean, if animals uh, could do without sleep, it would in some way be much better, right? Because they would be able to avoid predators or spend more time looking for prey if they're carnivores. Or uh, So there's a fundamental question, I guess, of why, why would you care about sleep in the first place? Um, and it, How far is neuroscience regarding that now?
0: Indeed, this is one of the core questions. So, why why do we sleep? Although we again uh, probably need to uh, slow down and step back and ask ourselves if this is the right question to ask Mm. in the first place, because sleep is such a heterogeneous, complex phenomenon that if you and uh, as I said, if you start dissecting sleep into different phenomena, some of them may, may be much more important than others. So it is probably uh, more important rather than asking why do we sleep, uh, ask about specific phenomena uh, which characterize sleep, why they, why they happen. It is a, indeed a good uh, point that most animals or all animals that were carefully studied, so far they sleep. So far to my knowledge nobody was able to find an animal that does not s- sleep. On one hand, it may suggest that sleep has uh, some vital, very crucially important function, that if you don't sleep, uh, you die. Uh, But again, we need to be uh, careful with these conclusions. Maybe you can achieve sleep functions, not via sleeping, but somehow in a different way.
1: Also, when you talk about things like lying down for eight hours and not really moving but everyone's kind of encountered someone who speaks in their sleep or walks in their sleep and I mean by definition they're no longer lying down but you would argue that they're also asleep and I guess that that's that kind of gets to what you're saying about how there are sometimes different states or different aspects of sleep so so what are some of the things that you would look at to say that someone's asleep
0: yeah yeah exactly so the the one that you just mentioned immobility absence of movement is indeed one of the most important characteristics of sleep but again as you mentioned so we do move during sleep we in fact move a lot move m- many times dur- during uh, the night uh, sometimes it is associated with a brief arousal although we never remember that so we would wake up and we wouldn't remember that we moved and we were up although there is a very interesting condition called paradoxical insomnia or sleep state misperception when a patient wake up, wakes up in the morning and then claims that he didn't sleep at all or that he was able to get only a couple of hours of sleep and his objective polysomnography shows that he had seven eight hours of sleep so it's like just a complete blank in their memory and yeah, yeah exactly. So this is when we have this uh, divergence between ob- objective sleep and subjective perception of having having slept. So one possibility is that in this case, uh, parts of the brain are in a way uh, partially awake during during this state, and this is why there there is a lot of conscious experience going on, like in dreaming. So when you're dreaming, you obviously. Uh, pretty sure that you are awake, so you never, uh, rarely ask in your dream whether you're sleeping or not. So probably something of like that happens in this state. So going back again to the question, so you you don't move when you're asleep in most cases, normally you're not supposed to be moving, and why sleepwalking normally is not happening, because indeed, since part of parts of your brain are asleep, it is uh, dangerous to, to walk around and expose yourself to predators. And especially during REM rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, also called paradoxical sleep, there's a state which, when the brain is active, it is as active as during waking. Although if you look at brain activity, some areas are less active, such as prefrontal cortex. In this state, it is especially important that you are not moving because um, otherwise you you would play
2: out, act out your dreams. So wait, you're saying that there's basically... Two main kinds of sleep, right? There's what you said, rapid eye movement sleep. So I suppose because we move our eyes rapidly, what's what's the other kind then? Yes, there are two uh,
0: sleepers of two kinds. It is uh, non rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. It is interesting that they uh, that the predominant state of sleep, which is non rapid eye movement sleep, is kind of secondary in this classification. Mm. up to fifties of the nineteen la- fifties uh, of the last. Um, Last century, we thought that there is just one state uh, stage of sleep, but then it was uh, found by Kleitman and Azerinski at the University of Chicago, who observed eye movement during sleep, that they occur periodically. Mm-hmm. In fact, originally, it was, uh, it was known that eyes uh, can move during sleep, uh, but it was considered a measure of sleep depth and uh, at some point Kleitman and Azerinsky they decided to quantify this phenomenon they abs- observed that they occur with a striking periodicity and when uh, this was combined with polysomnographic recordings it turned out that brain activity, uh, EEG activity was characteristically different between a rapid eye movement sleep and non-rapid eye
2: movement sleep so yes since 50s we know that there are two kinds of sleep. You mentioned that brain activity is different First of all, in which way is it different? And second of all, how what tools do we use to actually measure that difference?
0: The uh, conventional way to measure brain activity during sleep in humans is using EEG electroencephalography. Uh, so EEG, as you know, has been uh, used um, for the first time a while ago, almost 100 years ago, first during waking and then during sleep. And uh, originally only few electrodes were used to pick up activity, uh, but now we use much more advanced techniques. We use, for example, high-density EEG, where you place 256 electrodes, and then you find uh, sources uh, of specific oscillations. And uh, when you look at EEG during non rapid eye sleep, and rapid eye sleep, they're quite different. Based on EEG, we now subdivide sleep in several stages and sub-stages. First we subdivide sleep into non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. And then non-rapid eye movement sleep is further subdivided into three sub-stages, which are called simply stage one, two and three. Stage one is a very superficial sleep state, so if I wake you up from stage one, you would usually think that you are still awake. This is when um, sleep just begins usually uh, EEG activity starts slowing down, it, is, it becomes dominated by alpha wave. You know, transition between wake and sleep is not, uh, not abrupt, although it may seem like that. But if you look at brain activity, it is very uh, slow, gradual transition. In, in um, patients with um, invasive electrodes, it was found that uh, sleep spindles, it is a type of activity, and, and which is, is a hallmark of stage 2 sleep. Uh, These spindles uh, start happening in some deep brain structures, sometimes 10 15 minutes before you see uh, EEG activity on the uh, skull. So, parts of your brain can fall asleep way before you fall asleep mm-hmm. total, in total. Generally, mm-hmm. the deepest stage of sleep, which now we call uh, stage 3 or delta sleep, is characterized by high amplitude, slow waves. This is a very important stage of sleep. This is the deepest uh, stage of sleep. It is most difficult to wake you up from this state. Although uh, REM sleep can also be further subdivided into phasic and tonic. Phasic when your eyes are moving and um, heart rate becomes very irregular and you have muscle twitches. That is also deepest, deeper stage of sleep. But slow waves that occur during non-arm sleep they are, they are considered to be a very important phenomenon which may play very important uh, roles in synaptic plasticity and some other functions of sleep. Although we, we need to be careful with equating uh, sleep and slow waves and this is uh, another quite big and resolved question. Sometimes we tend to equate sleep and slow waves. When when I say local sleep, I mean local occurrence of slow waves. And this is when you run into this big issue of defining sleep. This is where uh, our discussion started at the beginning. How do you define sleep? We look at the behavior. You you are immobile. Your eyes are closed. I need to deliver stronger sound to wake you up. Your sensory disconnected to some extent. Uh, But uh, when I look at your brain activity... It is very complex. It is not like slow waves happening everywhere at the same time. Parts of your brain may actually look quite awake during this time.
1: We also know that there are different things which make you sleepy or drive your sleep. So um, anyone who's ever traveled internationally is very much aware of circadian rhythms and jet lag as a result of that. But also if you don't sleep for a while, you can kind of get sleepy or that makes you very tired, which is apart from what time of day it is. So do you mind just talking about what drives that sleep behavior?
0: So our sleep amount, duration, distribution and intensity or depth are regulated by interaction of two factors. One is called circadian factor So, and it is related to our circadian rhythmic, rhythmicity. Every cell in our body has molecular machinery which, which is based on transcription translation loop. And we have also a master clock in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus, which is believed to synchronize all these clocks across our entire body. This is very important physiologically. So this is one factor. Another factor, as you mentioned, is our preceding sleep-wake history. Intuitively, it is very simple. The longer you stay awake, the higher is your sleep need. Imagine what happens when you wake up in the morning. When you wake up in the morning, uh, you, are, you feel fresh and rested and you're ready to stay awake. As time goes by, we have something curious happening. Your homeostatic sleep need builds up because you stayed awake. At the same time, your circadian propensity for wakefulness is still at a relatively low level. This is why we have our deep in performance in early afternoon hours. And then in the evening, we have something called... the um, Wake maintenance zone it is in fact it is difficult to fall asleep at about 9 to 10 p.m. because during this time uh, although your homeostatic sleep pressure is high your circadian drive for arousal is also at the very high level it partially counteracts this drive for sleep and then you easily fall asleep later because your
2: sleep homeostatic pressure is at a very high level so I always thought that not falling asleep at 9 or 10 was my problem of not having the discipline to fall asleep early enough, but apparently the body actually dictates that. Yes, exactly. To some extent. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: But I guess that there is some individual variation with that, where everyone kind of might have a slightly mm-hmm. different circadian rhythm or different homeostatic need for sleep.
0: Yes. Some none of us has our endogenous clock running at exactly 24 hours, first of all. So we all have slightly shorter or slightly longer period and it is not only about humans, also about animals, so which this probably allows some flexibility for, uh, for us to adapt to the environment. And uh, we, we know that uh, there are different chronotypes. We can talk about larks and owls, although these are more extreme phenotypes, most of us are somewhere in between. If we go to bed and wake up not too early, not, not too late uh so uh, there are probably this is probably genetically uh, determined at least to some extent but sleep is a very complex phenotype there's clearly more than one gene responsible for sleep there are probably many genes which interact with each other which account for your overall sleep behavior
1: so what are some of the aspects of sleep that your lab is particularly interested in so we we have several projects
0: uh, going in our laboratory They are all to some extent related to a relatively new idea that sleep is not a global process, but it has uh, local aspects. As I mentioned at the beginning, it is likely that it, it is not like your entire brain falls asleep and wakes up altogether, but sleep starts at the level of local brain areas or even individual neurons. So we already have uh, quite some evidence and support of this notion. Uh, The functional implication of this finding is not not entirely clear, although it may suggest that sleep occurs in an activity or use-dependent manner, such as those brain areas that were more used or more active or experienced some plasticity-related processes during waking, they require more sleep or more intense sleep.
2: So, you, so you're saying that if I've been listening to music uh, during the day for a long time, in the evening, my auditory brain areas might fall asleep instead of my visual areas only, and that is something that is related to me listening to music? Exactly. And this is uh, what has been done a few years
0: ago when in the uh, um, University of Wisconsin Medicine, when subjects were kept awake for 40 hours and they were either listening to an audio book and then would uh, talk about what they just heard so they would load their language related areas another group would spend time in a driving simulator so they would uh, load most of the visual parts of the brain and if you record high density eeg continuously at regular intervals you can see some signatures of local sleep which, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, can be reflected in slowing down of brain waves, you can see that uh, this local sleep would occur in different brain areas, depending on what you are doing during your time spent awake.
1: Are those kind of regional differences in slow wave something that you can pick up on a surface EEG, or would you need to do more invasive testing and monitoring?
0: Yeah, even with uh, uh, surface EEG recordings, you can already pick up um, regional differences, uh, but quite amazingly, you can find uh, pronounced differences in s- sleep activities, even on a very local scale. So uh, in our last uh, l- uh, recent experiments, we recorded intracortically um, neuronal activity within a small patch of somatosensory cortex within about like two millimeters area and so when you look at uh, this type of uh, uh, neuronal activity you find that uh, ne- neurons even um, in, within a very small area can do very different things and this is what we don't really understand because if you think of a sleep as a global uh, state uh, that must be somehow regulated in a more or less centralized or um, global um, fashion, it is surprising that uh, in a small cortical area, some neurons can show wake-like activity and other neurons can show sleep-like
2: activity. Is this a sort of revolutionary moment in which we suddenly define not so much sleep as either sleeping or being awake, but as much more of a continuum?
0: Yes. Uh, So I think... um, uh, here we need to go back uh, back in history to uh, to the beginning of um, uh, last century, when uh, there was an, uh, an outbreak of a mysterious disease called encephalitis lethargica. Uh, in, uh, so this um, this outbreak lasted for about ten years only. It was most pro- probably viral origin. Nobody really knows. This disease was very peculiar in, in, in a sense that it would affect very uh, specific brain areas. It was found that patients in which uh, uh, lesion occurred in the anterior hypothalamus, they would become uh, sometimes profound like uh, insomniacs. Mm-hmm. They would uh, have much less sleep. On the other hand, if posterior hypothalamus was lesioned, then... Um, they, uh, on the other hand, they would sleep much longer. Mm. Therefore, this was absorbed uh, by Constantine uh, von Economo, who is a, who was a neurologist, and he suggested there are there is a sleep center and a wakefulness center in the brain that regulates the transition from waking to sleep. Uh, of course, um, uh, this uh, the. Subcortical circuitry, which is involved in regulation of sleep and waking, now is um much uh, uh, is much mar- much more complicated. There are quite a few areas in the brain which are key for sleep and wakefulness, and this is why our field was always for many decades dominated by the view that uh, sleep is produced in a in an all or none fashion uh, until it was. Um, notice that parts of the brain can enter sleep mode independently from others. It it has been shown that I think the uh, original um, uh, article that suggested this possibility was published by a Russian scientist, Ivan Pigarev, who was not a sleep researcher at all, published an article somewhere in the 90s. Uh, He uh, worked with monkeys. He recorded single neurons in a monkey that would perform a task, And he would uh, record an individual neuron that would produce spikes um, somehow during the task uh, in in a meaningful way. And then he would notice that individual neurons would sometimes stop producing spikes. So the monkey would still continue performing, but neuron was no longer active. And then after some time, it would come back, start start spiking again. And and he he said, okay, well, maybe this neuron fell asleep. So does sleep occur at the level of neurons? So he was not a sleep researcher so he did not record EEG so this was a great idea he published this and um, this is how this uh, field start, started developing of course another important line of evidence came from studies in marine mammals such as dolphins so we know that they mm-hmm. they never sleep with the entire brain at once but they literally switch between left and right hemisphere Uh, But our study uh, uh, that was published in 2011 provided probably most um, uh, comprehensive evidence in support of this notion. We uh, recorded uh, multi-unit activity, neuronal activity. This again we are using those micro-Y arrays that we place in the cortex and we can record neuronal populations in the area of interest in rats and we recorded continuously for many hours so this was our uh, this is also a technique that I'm using here in my lab we impl- implant electrodes then we uh, give the animals to rest after surgery to recover and then we record literally for days because sleep occurs sleep regulation happens in this slow time scale across 24 hours so we need to collect a lot of data and we noticed that once in a while although the rat would look completely awake, it would move. We would find that local group of neurons would, pro- would would go silent and produce, and at the same time on the local field potential or on the EEG, you would observe a slow wave. So you had at a local level the signature of sleep that you're looking for. Exactly, yeah. So we found this in a, a very curious dissociation between global behavior and local cortical state. This would happen especially frequently when the animal was tired or sleep deprived Mm -hmm. and this is very familiar to all of us so when we stay awake uh, too late then we have this uh, feeling of sleepiness what is likely is that the substrate of this feeling of sleepiness is the occurrence of local sleep so we probably never fully awake or asleep so sometimes we always parts of the brain are kind of idling they, they They exist in a sleep-like state, especially when those parts of the brain are not used or when sleep, neither sleep pressure is high. So we we really have to work hard on bridging this gap between behavioral manifestations of sleep and the question of why do we need to be globally asleep uh, with something that happens in the brain at the level of individual neurons and local brain areas. In fact, this is one of the interests uh, of our laboratory if you look at uh, the activity of the neocortex specifically the motor area it is the motor uh, it is a part of the cortex which is implicated in movement we found that the local area of the cortex can also sometimes fall asleep so to say it can go into this transient brief period of silence uh, accompanied with a slow wave and if if the cortex produces such a slow wave it, is, it was more likely that if the rat is trying to reach the sugar pellet during this moment, it will drop. It. So we found a relationship between the occurrence of local sleep and behavioral performance.
1: Have they found similar evidence of this kind of localized slow-wave activity in humans? In humans, uh, you can see regional differences at the
0: level of EEG, but more recent studies where uh, patients which were implanted for diagnostic purposes, such as patients with drug-resistant epilepsy, in in those patients, you can see exactly the same uh, phenomena. You can see that slow waves occur in local brain areas
2: and uh, literally never everywhere at the same time. Uh, So just a few more thoughts, I guess, because I think a lot of people will instantly think of dreaming when they think about Mm -hmm. sleep. I know your research isn't necessarily directly about that, but do you think given what we know about our own dreaming patterns and what we try to understand about those, do you think we can make any claims about dreaming occurring in animal models of sleep?
0: Uh, When uh, uh, REM REM sleep, rapid eye moment sleep, or paradoxical sleep was originally discovered, it was also called dream sleep. It was considered that dreams occur only during uh, a rapid eye moment sleep. Now we know that this is not true and this is another dogma uh, which is still uh, around in the field. But now we know that if you wake up subjects also during non-REM sleep in most cases there will be some conscious experience. In most cases there will be some dreaming even during non-REM sleep. Now several laboratories are trying to, uh, to relate specific patterns of brain activity with the occurrence of this conscious experience. Uh, We already have some indications such as um, dreams are least likely to occur during deepest stages of sleep when slow waves are most frequent and largest. So when you're in a very deep sleep, then you would probably have no dreams. And uh, it has been shown that some some, um, frequencies, some patterns of activity, they are more likely to correlate with occurrence of dreams. Of course, we can look at the very same signatures in animals. I find it not conceivable that you find uh, that animals dream and you can um, find what happens, investigate what happens in the brain during this
1: experience. Are there any ideas in neuroscience outside of the field of sleep that you find particularly exciting or that really interest you?
0: You know, it is not easy to answer this question because almost everything is related to sleep one way or another. Normally, neuroscientists tend to ignore sleep. But if you take basically any process in the brain, any function, it just changes fundamentally when you go from waking to sleep. I think this
2: sleep must be a part of any question in neuroscience. So I suppose people not studying sleep should be interested in sleep. Are you then also reading up on things that might not have anything to do with sleep and thinking, wait, wait a minute, these people forget about this. So when I started interested in aging and, and sleep,
0: I think I am becoming interested in more cellular physiology and for example cellular stress and the plasma reticulum stress, unfolded protein response. We know quite a few things at the molecular level, which may be fundamentally important for understanding other brain functions, and again, in relation to sleep.
1: Are there any ideas that are generally accepted by the field, so by neuroscientists, as fact, that you think we should maybe be a bit more skeptical about?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I saw recently that the view that memory is based on on synaptic interaction, changes in synaptic strengths, is sometimes being challenged because after quite a few decades of research we still do not really know where memory resi- resides and what are the mechanisms that underpin memory storage and so on. Again, it is somehow related to sleep. We uh, just published a paper um, a few days ago. With uh, It was an interesting collaboration. Uh, the paper is entitled Learning by association in plants. If we talk about plants in general, Uh, The kind of conventional view is that plant is something in a way much more primitive than we are. On the other hand, we know that plants are much better uh, uh, adapted to deal with changes in environment. They have so many senses, they can feel um, up to 20 chemicals, they they can feel vibration and so on. They can uh, uh, communicate to some extent by releasing... uh, substances into the air and uh, quite a few studies already have shown that they can show uh, simple forms of learning such as habituation and this has been shown in Mimosa pudica you know you, pudica, you, you touch this plant and it drops leaves but if you do it several times it no longer drops its leaves amazing behavior that you see at the level of the plant uh, so plants can show simple forms of uh, learning such as habituation and in our study, we showed at least uh, some evidence they can also learn uh, form associations between, in this case, um, air flow and light. Light is very important for plants, obviously, for many reasons. And uh, I think we should be more open-minded about organisms that are more, much simpler and have much simpler
2: nervous system
1: that's fascinating. It's not something i have really thought much about. Have a, have that's a, what I'm It's, the... it's gonna be my yeah. evening reading, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. Our last question is gonna be looking to the future, and that is where do you see the future of sleep research going and how do you see your lab fitting into that?
0: I don't know. I think it is one of the ex- exciting aspects is that we don't really know where 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 we go in the sleep field. I'm I'm really hoping that uh, that we would, as I mentioned, become a bit more open-minded because sleep, since we don't really understand sleep, it is dominated by dogmas. It is necessary. We must have some reference points. We need to have uh, language to talk about things, but uh, almost inevitably it leads to oversimplification when we start talking about things like, like they're taken for granted, but even... Uh, when you look critically it appears to be much more complicated uh, so I, I think we do not really know where we go As I said we need uh, new ideas obviously development of new technologies will help us to make uh, important steps and, but I think we, rather than asking the question why do we sleep we need to be asked what sleep is because this will be the, the key question I am sure that I love the finest
1: places. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Dr. Vyasovsky again for his time and for a really interesting interview. I hope that you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. If you would liked it, then please subscribe or leave us a comment. Your hosts this week were Samuel Picard, Paula Condos, and myself, Alex von Klemperer. Our theme music is by Eves Blue. If you'd like to know more about the Cortex Club, then check it out at cortexclub.com. Until next time, goodbye for now.